on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. And my name is Sally Rugg. And some of the things I say in the podcast may or may not represent the views of my employer. How are you, Sally? I'm really good. I'm really good. Have you had a win or two this week? Um, it's hard to, hard to say, as is the case often with campaign wins. I imagine you're referring to the Maraguppan family who have been desperate to go to their home in Biloela for several years and the sort of the community of people who are supporting them, who I have in turn had the absolute honour of supporting. It was announced this week, interestingly, the day after Mr Barnaby Joyce reclaimed the Nationals' leadership, that the government uh, via Minister Alex Hawke has granted three of the family members bridging visas for three months. It's interesting regarding Barnaby Joyce because, weirdly, he's been a really passionate supporter of the family for a very long time, and so that might have had something to do with it. So Priya, Nadez and Kopika have been granted three-month bridging visas, which is obviously incredible. But not a fourth one. No. So Tanika, who is, has just turned four, she remains under community detention orders. Obviously, the family have to stay with their four-year-old baby daughter. So that's pretty weird. And look, we don't know why that decision has been made. Can I take a guess? Yeah. Because I think that this family would be able to travel immediately back to Biloela if it was on a bridging visa and have the freedom of movement, of course, within COVID guidelines to go back there. And um, the government's making a pragmatic decision to make sure that it does not reconnect with that community. Is that a, is that a fair guess? Look, it does feel like the government is avoiding those front page splashes of happy photographs. You don't want happy families. Reunited in Biloela. Yeah, so the family's lawyer and every other immigration lawyer has been saying sort of like, there's no reason why, you know, she can't be also granted a bridging visa. And of course, like it's just really important to note that this is not a win for the family. This is not security into the future. We don't know what's going to happen at the end of those three months. But also the fact that within a week, this family were evacuated from the Christmas Island Detention Centre brought to Perth and have now been granted bridging visas. There's a whole suite of options that can happen with bridging visas, but one of them is that they can renew, right? And that wouldn't have happened without the extraordinary support from millions, really, of Australians across this continent. It's truly extraordinary. And I hope the people listening who have you know, signed a petition or showed up to a rally or, you know, shared some content online, emailed their MP, anything to support this campaign. I hope that you know that you've been part of this as well. And Priya, one of the things she has says is like, oh, the, 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 the thing is, is when, when we're finally able to go home to Biloela, I just won't know how to, where to begin with thanking everybody. Like the only thing she's anxious about is like how she's going to be able to personally thank each one of you, <laughs> which is just classic Priya. So I hope everybody can sort of have a smile and feel good about that. One step further along the path to uh, having this family fully integrated into the community that loves them. They have been spending a lot of time on Christmas Island. Mm. And today on The Job, we're going to tell you a little bit about Christmas Island's rather unique 
industrial relations history. There is a story about Christmas Island and its workers, which I'd never heard before, that Osmond Chu has researched and written about, which will blow your mind. Mm. And we're going to catch up with Osmond Chu to talk about that in just a moment. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach and Sally Rugg with you. So, Sally, we've been talking a little bit about uh, Christmas Island, but there's a story about the working history and the cultural history of Christmas Island, which I never knew about, but I stumbled across by reading the Jacobin or Jacobian magazine recently, which just blew my mind. And I shared it with you and you like me. I thought, so have you heard about the workers of Christmas Island before? Yeah, I had no idea about this history. And like, I'm quite happy to not know things about things. Like I not know about a lot of things, but with this in particular, it seemed such a profound piece of history and so important that I immediately felt a sense of shame and embarrassment that I didn't know about it because I thought, oh, everybody must know about this. It's so important. But I think perhaps that's not the case. And it's a little secret part of Australia's history that needs to be told. And Osman Chu is the man who's been telling it. Now, Osman is the research fellow with the per capita think tank, but also the senior policy research officer with the CPSU, uh, the Public Service Union. And he's been writing about this extraordinary industrial dispute that happened on Christmas Island, which has become famous for all the wrong reasons in recent times. In the 1970s, it tells you a lot about colonialism, about about big business and, and about how to organise yourself and for workers to actually achieve great outcomes. And Osman joins us here on the job today. Hi, Osman. How are you going? Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's just start with a bit of geography because I reckon also one of the things I didn't get quite right was exactly where Christmas Island is situated. I kind of know it's in the Indian Ocean somewhere, Sally and Osman, but exactly where is it, Osman? So Christmas Island is about... 1,550 kilometres northwest of the closest point on the Australian mainland. It's actually much closer to Indonesia than it is to Australia. So it's about 350 kilometres just south of Java and Sumatra. Yeah. Can I just say, if you were from WA, like I am, you would know where Christmas Island is. <laughs> Very East Coast thing to say. Oh, such an Eastern States person. Yeah. <laughs> Regional differences. How then does it become Australia's territory? How are we in charge of Christmas Island given its remoteness? So Christmas Island was annexed by the British in the late 19th century um, because they discovered phosphate on the island, a key ingredient for fertilisers. And it was, for a period of time, like held by Singapore. Um, So it was actually transferred to Australia in 1958. So it's only been Australian territory for not that long a period of time. Okay, so it gets transferred to Australian ownership, this island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. What happens next? How does the community develop? How does industry develop? Can you um, take us up to the point, you know, where we meet the story your article is about? Yeah, so as I mentioned, Christmas Island was kind of first annexed by the British in the 19th century because they discovered there's phosphate on the island. As a result, they import a lot of workers to mine the phosphate because it's a key ingredient for fertilisers for agriculture. Many of those workers come from what's now Malaysia, China, Singapore, and you know, many of them are indentured labourers. I was about to say, and when you said import the workers, I sort of yeah. had this little red light start flashing being like, uh-oh, <laughs> it doesn't sound good. 
to sort of oversee the phosphate mining, a corporation is set up by the British, Australian and New Zealand governments um, called the British Phosphate Commission. Uh, and they're sort of a, a key institution in this whole story of what's happened on Christmas Island. Uh, so they effectively run what happens on the island. I think the comparison that someone once made about it is something like the British Raj to give you a sense of what it was like. So it's the same sort of model, isn't it? People don't realise that India was colonised not necessarily by a British army but by British companies with their own private armies uh, uh, that would go and, and overtake different parts of, uh, of India, basically colonise the workforce and extract the wealth of the nation, send it on to Britain. And it wasn't a standing army that was occupying Britain but it was the, the power of the British institutions themselves to, to uh, basically rule the community and transfer the wealth. And this was a, a model like that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and one of the other things is even though Christmas Island had been transferred to Australia, a lot of the laws that apply to Australia didn't apply to Christmas Island. So the Migration Act, the Citizenship Act, even after it was passed, the uh, Racial Discrimination Act didn't apply. Right. And is that still the case now? No, surely not. Not anymore, but it's because of what the Union of Christmas Island workers did um, that the situation changed. It was their struggle that has meant that a lot of the differences have been overturned. So we get to the 1970s and the islanders who have been brought to work there are being paid what one-fifth of what white workers were receiving. Were they working alongside and with white workers who were being paid that much more than them? Uh, yeah, so the best way you could describe what was going on in Christmas Island was a system of virtual apartheid. So the British Phosphate Commission had extraordinary powers. It owned everything, including just the local shops and the island's housing, transport, you know, swimming pools and education system were all segregated. So just as an example, white families lived in houses that were built to Australian standards, whereas you had Asian families living in small flats without even hot water or air conditioning, just as an example. And this is right up into the 1970s, right? Yeah, and those Asian workers who had come to Christmas Island were also forbidden from ever settling permanently on the island itself. So, you know, they'd come with their families, but there was no opportunity for them to stay. And also they would have been subject to what we were talking about in a sense before is uh, a temporary visa that the BPC, the British Phosphate Commissioners, could cancel at any time and stamp NTR, never to return, to be basically exiled from the island at the whim of the company if the company felt that that was what they wanted to do. Is that right? Yeah, and often it just happens where workers were only given 24 hours to leave the island. So they got it stamped on their passport and were told you have 24 hours to leave Christmas Island, never to return. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so so what happens next? Tell, tell us tell us the juicy bit. The, the workers start to organise, right? So the catalyst for change on Christmas Island happened in 1974. Uh, so the chief interpreter in the island's administrative office. Uh, so he's the the highest paid worker of Asian heritage on all of Christmas Island, is fired by the Phosphate Commission um, in March 1974, and he was ordered to leave Christmas Island in 24 hours. And I don't think they realised what would happen after they did that. So the next day, 
more than 1,100 workers refused to report to work. They took strike action, marching in protest. So when you think about Christmas Island, it's an island with around like 2,000 people. So you, you're talking about half the island going in strike and probably a much larger proportion of the workforce. And their action forced the Phosphate Commission to rescind the deportation order and to later reinstate him. But that was really the seeds of that started what was to come next. So at that time, the powers of collective action was suddenly realised by the workers and they got organised. They started the Union of Christmas Island Workers, the UCIW, and then they hired a school teacher to be the first general secretary of the union. Tell us about Michael Grimes, the guy that was you know, charged with trying to organise these workers to make sure that they could take uh, even further action to improve their circumstances. So after the initial strike, what happened was 15 Asian community leaders met secretly in 1975, and so they formed the Union of Christmas Island Workers. Um, so what they did is they elected Michael Grimes, who was a school teacher, the first general secretary of the union on a part-time basis, and that was in part because he had some previous experience like setting up unions. You know, he was a teacher who had come to Christmas Island and had previously, you know, worked in Papua New Guinea, you know, setting up teachers' unions there. And within the first week of the formation of the union, you had over 700 workers had joined that new union. Wow, that's amazing. And I can imagine really risky, right? Like there would have been a reason that they were having that first meeting in secret. Yeah, because of the powers of the British Phosphate Commission, the fact that the regime where someone could be deported within 24 hours still existed. So they took a big risk, but they knew that if things were going to change, they needed the power of collective action. What were some of their first successes in in trying to change things? So the real success came later during that decade. So Michael Grimes sort of resigned as the Secretary of the Union in 1978 and he was replaced by Gordon Bennett. So Gordon was a bit of an eccentric character um, who had been the General Secretary of the Water Supply Union in WA. And he, what he did is he took a bit more of a militant approach to things. So under when he became leader the union immediately called for a $30 a week raise and minimum wage parity with the mainland within a year. They also demanded Australian citizenship rights for Christmas Islanders and called for the government to take you know, full administrative control of the island. Pretty ambitious uh, <laughs> if you think about it. But what they did is knowing these are pretty big demands, they took big action. So, you know, in 1979, you know, workers got together and they voted to take strike action in support of those demands to bring phosphate production to a halt. And I think that's where things really get interesting. So what the Phosphate Commission did was they fought back against the striking workers. So they stood down hundreds of workers and following a strike by shiploaders. But under the industrial agreements they had, they technically couldn't do that. So what the company did is they brought in the Arbitration Commission to sort of change the industrial agreement to say, oh, yeah, it's okay to do that. So the commissioner flew into Christmas Island and inserted in a bit of a stand-down clause to legitimise what the Phosphate Commission did. Unsurprisingly, that didn't go down well with the 
uh, workers on the island and at a mass meeting, workers voted to prevent the deputy president of the Arbitration Commission from even leaving the island. <laughs> so they, they, they grounded his plane so he couldn't fly out. Yeah. And so real, he was only allowed to leave some days later after Bob Hawke himself flew to Christmas Island um, and intervened. Oh, my gosh. No way. <laughs> so Hawke fl- flies to Christmas Island and has to basically broker a peace deal between the workers, the company, and the Industrial Relations Commissioner, commissioner who's been grounded on the island. Mm, yeah, it's like quite a story. But I think oh, one thing is the union realised that for it to win, they had to do more than just take industrial action on the island. So they took their campaign to the mainland and they made use of some like creative tactics to actually get their message out there and win public support. Uh, so they took the Home Affairs Minister because Home Affairs had you know some responsibility for Christmas Island um, to court for underpayments. And most notably, they established a protest tent camp outside of Parliament House in July 1979. And later that year, what they did is they actually waged a 12-day hunger strike to get media attention. And that strike actually coincided at the same time as Malcolm Fraser attended a conference on the future of, you know, what was to become Zimbabwe. Wow. How extraordinary. And hold hold on a second. So y- you said they, they took the Home Affairs Minister for, to court for underpayment? Yeah, for underpayment. That's extraordinary. Yes. <laughs> Did they win? Uh, I, I don't believe they won that because they continued on with their campaign. Um, but I think they took advantage of the fact that Malcolm Fraser had gone to talk about, you know, the future of Zimbabwe, you know, and in many ways embarrassed him into taking action. So against all the odds, the union won the pay rise, it demanded immediately, and its protest actions, like its hunger strike, also resulted in a public inquiry into the British Phosphate Commission. Incredible. So it was basically the beginning of the end of the BPC, wasn't it? That was as the island became more directly under control of the Australian government. Yeah, um, the inquiry was run by a former BHP executive, Wilfred Streetland, and it says a lot that this former BHP executive was like absolutely scathing of the commission. He described it as colonial and repugnant. And the commission recommended that Christmas Island be brought under the same administrative jurisdiction and industrial legislation as mainland Australia. And, you know, by 1981, the union had won all its industrial demands, including wage parity with Australia and the extension of the Migration Act, which meant that you know, Christmas Islanders could actually become permanent residents. And importantly, the British Phosphate Commission came to an end and was replaced by a publicly owned phosphate mining company of Christmas Island. It's an extraordinary uh, turnaround, isn't it? In a very short space of time. So around 1981, they start to realise of, of the full log of claims get uh, come to fruition. And this really only gets going in 1974. So in the space of seven years, their uh, concerted campaigning and commitment to change has completely revolutionised their status with the company and basically brought the company to a standstill and, and delivered justice for workers. It's, uh, it's quite an incredible uh, story of success, Osman. Yeah, it just shows, as I said earlier, the power of collective action. But why I think this is an important story as well is that it shows that understanding of the power of collective action is a universal message that people understand. 
Because when we do talk about it, there's often this idea that, you know, people from culturally diverse backgrounds don't understand unionism or collective action or the power of strikes or they don't have agency or are meek. But what this does show is that, no, actually, that's not the case, that, you know, people, regardless of where they come from, what their background is, they get what it is to be union and the power of a union. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, the crowd goes wild, <laughs> both at the, the climax of the story and also the the epilogue just then. Um <laughs> Osman, were there ongoing issues after the log of claims was settled and the union had basically established some pay parity and uh, its immigration status had been confirmed as well? That couldn't have been, you know, happily ever after on Christmas Island. What other issues did workers face there after those uh, those wins in the early eighties? Yeah, so there have been ongoing struggles since then. Um, so in 1987, the government closed the phosphate mine. Um, although, you know, the union was able to, you know, purchase the mine and reopen it in 1990, other attempts at diversifying the economy uh, haven't borne fruit. Um, so they had previously opened the casino, but it shut during the Asian financial crisis. And the Australian government's blocked proposals to boost tourism by revitalising the resort and casino. And it's an ongoing source of frustration on the island because it's meant that the detention centre is the largest employer on the island. So in the end, though, this story's up there with the green bands uh, in Sydney in, in the 1960s and 1970s and uh, and the wave he'll walk off uh, in terms of epic Australian industrial relations and and civil rights struggle, but it's so unknown. Were you surprised that nobody had talked about this before you sort of stumbled across this story? Yeah, I was surprised. And as someone who is a unionist who has an interest in labour history, I was just like gobsmacked that I hadn't heard about it before. And I only came across it because I was idly scrolling through my Facebook feed when I saw a post in one of these like um, groups I'm in um, about Chinese-Australian history. So there was a person who was living and born on Christmas Island and they posted a school photo and then they were talking about, you know, when they were growing up, there were separate schools on Christmas Island and how there was an apartheid system with separate rights and conditions. And, you know, as someone who's an Asian-Australian, I just thought, you know, surely that can't be right because... If there was an apartheid system on Australian territory, I would have heard about it before, surely. And it sort of led me down this rabbit hole trying to you know, find out more. And you know, as a result, I sort of learned about this great struggle by the workers of Christmas Island. And have you had any reaction from Islanders after they've read your story? I'd imagine there are still people who were involved in that struggle who are still alive today and their, their descendants as well. Have they been in touch and have they been surprised to discover some of their own history? Yeah, so they a few of them have gotten in touch. The Some of the reps on the... Um, you know, executive of the Union of Christmas Island Workers have reached out and told me, you know, how they really enjoyed the article and how they discussed it at their recent executive meetings. So, you know, obviously I'm telling their story and I, hopefully I do it justice, but I think their story should be known by the wider labour movements and the rest of the country. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And thank you so much for coming on today and telling us that story and, and sharing it with our listeners. 
Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you, Osman. Osman Chu there, who is uh, the research fellow at the Per Capita Think Tank and also the Senior Policy Research Officer with the CPSU, talking to us about Christmas Island's secret apartheid history and the victory that workers won there through their hard struggle in the 70s and 80s to, to change their circumstance. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Francis and Sally with you. What a story that is, Sal. So good. I was like selfishly reassured that um, Osmond also hadn't heard about this beforehand. And so it wasn't just me and it wasn't just us. But yeah, truly extraordinary and really recent history. There would be people all across Christmas Island who, you know, that, that this experience has been in their lifetime. And how in, the sort of ingenuity of the workers to go, oh, when the uh, arbitration commissioner comes to the island says, oh, we're going to reinstate that stand-down clause, oh, are we now? Yeah. How about you don't go anywhere for a little while, have yeah. a bit of a rethink, because there's no boats or planes for you to get on yeah. to go anywhere. This your plane? It's ours now. <laughs> Amazing stuff. And Bob Hawke riding in to, uh, to solve the problem as per usual. Great story. Thank you to Osmond Chu for sharing it. The Jacobin Magazine is a really good read, jacobinmag.com, if you want to check it out. Lots of stories about... Uh, Progressive issues there. It's a long-standing American magazine, but it does publish a lot of Australian stuff. It does have an Australian page on it as well. But uh, I, I just subscribe for twenty or so bucks a year or something like that, and you can just read read your to your heart's content and find out all these sort of stories that otherwise would pass you by. <laughs> Don't forget to give us a rating on your favourite app or uh, platform for your podcast. Five stars would do. You take five stars. Oh, go on. Yeah, sure. Go all five. Uh, it helps other people find the podcast, share the information and inspiration, and uh, we will catch you next time on On The Job. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.